This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. Hefner normally got up on a usual day at about four o'clock in the afternoon. In 1982, journalist Russell Miller stays for a while in Hugh Hefner's Los Angeles mansion and gets a glimpse of the unusual daily routine of the Playboy boss. He would call down to the kitchen and say, standard breakfast, and there would be some nudging between the butlers who nobody really wanted to go up and take their breakfast up for him because he was always complaining about one thing or another. And it isn't just breakfast that Hefner likes to his uncompromising specifications. In the kitchen, there is a diagram showing exactly how to make Hefner's perfect ham sandwich. And when it comes to gravy, and we heard this in Bobby's story too, he is very particular. There was a book, an entire book, in the kitchens of the mansion on precisely how to make his gravy. Because the one thing that would really, really upset him is if his gravy was lumpy. And he would go into a, a tantrum about it. Anyway, the breakfast would be taken up to him. And he would appear sometime after four or five, always in his silk pajamas with a silk uh, robe on top and blue monogrammed slippers. His working outfit. But Hefner isn't doing an awful lot of work at the moment. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, he played Monopoly with the same four friends. And as Hef and his cronies would disappear into the games house, and they could stay there for hours. They might stay playing uh, pinball you know, until three or four in the morning. There is every kind of pinball machine and fruit machine. Hefner would spend hours and hours playing Pac-Man. This was a house that could have been designed for, for kids, you know, big kids. He's spending more and more time in his fantasy world in the mansion, a world he has complete control over. In the real world, problems are mounting. The Playboy empire is experiencing substantial financial losses because of a slew of bad choices and failed investments. Hefner is also facing health problems and, horrifically, the fallout from the murder of a playmate who is a fixture at the mansion, Dorothy Stratton. The last thing I said to her is do not see your husband alone. It all spells major turmoil. The Playboy organization was exposed as in serious, serious trouble. And unsure where to go from here, or who he can really trust, Hefner turns to family for help. I was not afraid of him. I could bring him bad news. I could say things that were hard to hear that other people might have shied away from. I'm Amy Rose Spiegel. And from something else, this is season two of Power. The story of Hugh Hefner and the rise and fall of Playboy. Episode 5. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We heard last time about the tragedy that struck the heart of the Playboy organization in 1975. I think what he would describe as the darkest time was when Bobby Arnstein, his assistant, she was arrested and all hell broke loose. In the same year, the Playboy annual report featured a glossy cover shot of Hefner in an open shirt in front of the mansion. In the report, Hefner told readers how pleased and proud he was of the company's performance and how excited he was about the future. But that sunny outlook was quickly followed by the much bleaker facts. The report showed that of every $200 spent on Playboy Enterprises, only $1 was made in profit. By this point, the bloated Playboy business empire was far from just a magazine. It took many different forms. Playboy had invested in building large hotels, none of which were profitable. Playboy Records never made any money. The movie company, Playboy Productions, funded a series of unsuccessful films while turning down participation in box office smashes like Jaws. And Playboy Books, which had always been a money pit, was reporting its biggest losses ever. But there was one bright spot in the company's portfolio, and it was this area of the business that caught journalist Russell Miller's attention when he started reporting on Playboy in the early 80s. The um, Playboy casinos were generating virtually all the profit of the entire Playboy organization. On June 28, 1966, the first Playboy casino opened in London. It was a daring new venture, and not everyone in Playboy's Chicago headquarters was convinced it would work. But the casinos were a financial triumph. Playboy's gambling turnover in this country amounts in the past five years to something over 660 million pounds. That's 130 million pounds a year. Playboy casinos begins bringing up all around the world. Bunnies are rolling dice in Las Vegas, Tokyo, and Jamaica. Casinos make 80% of all Playboy's annual profits. And 95% of this company's sustaining revenue comes from the casinos in just one city. London. The flagship seven-story casino at 45 Park Lane, overlooking Hyde Park, becomes one of the most successful gambling joints in the world. It's overseen by a man we've heard about a few times, the tall and charming Victor Lowndes, the boss of Playboy Europe. The English casinos are his baby. Chicago Magazine says he is perhaps the most valuable man in the Playboy empire. The casinos and Victor are a smashing success. It was all going so well, until... Victor got into a, a sort of battle with rival casino operators. 
Playboy's big competitor is Ladbrokes, which ran several exclusive casinos in London, catering to the highest rollers. But Ladbrokes is surrounded by rumors that it's poaching its high-stakes players from other casinos through shady tactics. Victor, who prides himself on upholding the highest industry standards, goes after them. He lodges an objection to the renewal of their gaming license. It's a risky move, because it means drawing attention to Playboy's own casino operations in a time when the government wants to hem in the big business of gambling. Ladbrokes launches a counterattack and builds a dossier that is eventually handed over to police and the gaming board. Playboy was accused of allowing credit, of accepting checks knowing they would bounce. Ladbrokes claims that Playboy is running a ring of hotel porters to solicit casino guests and also isn't collecting debts. All of this finger-pointing backfires badly. At the end of the casino wars, the gaming board, which upholds legal standards around gambling in the UK, directs police to raid both Ladbrokes and Playboy's clubs. A sad sight for Playboy International, successful police evidence leaving the court at Westminster today. Bunnies were near to tears after the verdict and there was some surprise. Playboy had not expected anything so severe and there was talk that the crates of champagne in the boots of the Rolls Royces would be left unopened. You'd think Hefner would want to rally around Victor, his counterpart in Britain, especially because almost all of Playboy's profits were at risk. And after all, Victor had been a leader at Playboy since nearly the beginning. But we need to understand how, over the years, Hefner had come to resent Victor Lowndes. Everything Hefner pretended to be, Victor actually naturally was. He was gentlemanly, stylish, handsome, and adored by women, including the model Marilyn Cole, who chose him over Hefner. Victor was the true playboy, and Hefner worried that everyone knew it. Victor had got too big for his boots, was constantly going back to Chicago and boasting, I'm making all the money and you guys are pissing away the profits. But now, after the gaming board raids, this faultless, charismatic, golden man, whom Hefner both relied on and felt inferior to, had really, and really publicly, fucked up. Hefner decides to unceremoniously fire Victor, and Victor is convinced he's being made a scapegoat. I feel I've been definitely wronged by the company. I think the company is taking an attitude of, uh, of throwing myself to the wolves just because this particular management team thinks that uh, that, that will benefit the uh, company. And I don't think that's true. I don't think there has been that loss of confidence that they speak of. And I think that the gaming board still felt that I was the right man for, in the job. I was already thinking about getting rid of the people that had been running the company when we lost the licenses because I didn't think they'd handle it very well. Whatever may have motivated dumping Victor, this decision was about to come back to bite Hefner and Playboy. By doing that, he proved to the satisfaction of the British gaming board that ultimate control of the Playboy operation was vested in Chicago and not in London. And whatever rules the casinos may have broken under Victor, this move was a definitive screw-up from Hefner that would doom the casinos for good. It was strictly against the rules of the gaming board for a UK operation to be controlled in the US. On October 5th, 1981, 
Playboy lost the license for its key London casino, its biggest, most important source of revenue. And it was a disaster, a total disaster, entirely due to Hefner. The fallout didn't end there. Playboy had bet much of its financial future on a huge new luxury hotel and casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. As the authorities there watched the mess unfold in England, they decided not to allow Playboy to operate casinos in their state. The overall damage sends Playboy stocks tumbling as more and more casinos shudder. And this is certainly the end of an era. Playboy clubs in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles closing their doors at the end of June. All in all, these are troubled times. As it becomes harder to deal with the realities of his crumbling empire, the one thing Hefner feels he can control is his life in the mansion. Instead of tackling the mounting problems facing his business, Hefner retreats further into his carefully constructed fantasy at home. I came to the conclusion that Hefner, for want of a better word, was frightened of the real world. He didn't want to go out there. He lived in this so-called paradise, he called it a paradise, and didn't want to leave it because he, he was nervous of reality and exposing himself to things that were happening in the world. When Russell stays in the L.A. mansion in 1982, he encounters Hefner's sanctuary up close. You drive in through these manicured lawns with lots of wildlife. There are sort of rabbits and peacocks and birds of all kinds. The house is was built in the 20s. The closest you would think of it would be a, a Victorian vicarage. It's grey stone, mullioned windows, crenellated walls, and it looks very authentic. And you enter in, into the what they call the Great Hall, which is this massive entrance hall with a mezzanine floor and a big oak staircase. Hefner had bought the LA mansion 10 years earlier, in much better days, at the height of Playboy's success. The house was purchased by Hefner as a home base for his operations during his trips to California. Hefner has spent almost a million dollars on improvements for the huge estates, adding tennis courts, an underground swimming grotto, and a number of other luxuries to make the living a little easier. One of the things that happens, one of the very nice things that happens at, uh, at the mansion is that everybody kind of um, mellows out. It's, uh, it really is, it, it has developed a reputation as being kind of a Shangri-La, a sort of escape from the jungle that's out there. Yeah. But when Russell visits amid Playboy's crisis in 1982, he gets a very different impression. His lifestyle, um, which was supposed to be the ultimate in Playboy living, became this uh, strange recluse who never wanted to leave the house and, and wore silk pajamas. Hefner employs 90 full-time members of staff. They look after the upkeep of the property and meet the many demands of Hefner's lifestyle requirements. As we heard in Bobby Arnstein's story, he controls his staff with an iron fist. This man was an obsessive. He had become so involved with both the routine of the mansion and the it's running like clockwork and everything geared around his personal requirements and, and lifestyle that anything slightly out of order would be uh, mentioned. Hefner wields all this control to slightly unexpected results. 
Here is the playboy who should be going out and about visiting wonderful restaurants, having marvellous food, you know, in, in knowing about wine. Then here we have Hefner himself, who ate nothing but sandwiches, fried chicken and pot roast. And instead of fine wines, he drank Coca-Cola. If you read Playboy magazine, you'd know about the star-studded parties Hefner held at the mansion. It would appear he was living the ultimate Playboy life, but this, too, wasn't quite what it seemed. Well, the parties which were celebrated in Playboy magazine in tedious detail, I have to say, were not actually as you would imagine them. One time, Russell is in the mansion chatting with other guests and residents. Nothing much was happening. We were sitting in the great hall. People were chewing on sandwiches that had been provided by the kitchen and drinking, sitting around, pretty bored. At 11 p.m., a secretary appears. On the mezzanine, in a state of slight panic, and said, Hey, Hef's coming down. Make us a party. People leap to their feet. The music is turned up. When Hefner appeared, the whole place was alive. People dancing and laughing and joking, as if the party had been going on for hours. That's a, you know, an indication of how false the whole life was in, in the mansion. Russell says that the guest list was also something of a work of fiction. A good party always it meant there had to be twice as many girls as there were boys. That was a fundamental requirement by Hefner himself. In order to attract a sufficient number of girls, they had to cruise the UCLA campus, which was very nearby, and invite girls to come to a party at the Playboy Mansion. Pretty students probably thought it was a great idea. And when they got inside the party, they quickly realized that actually these were not major celebrity gatherings. Most of them were twice the age of the students. So girls that had been to one party very often never went to another. And if perchance, heaven forbid, not particularly attractive girl got through the net, because they were checked beforehand to make sure they, they achieved the necessary level of attractiveness. And those staff were instructed to keep her out of Hefner's sight because he would be offended. As Hefner retreats into his fake perfect life at the mansion, he's not just escaping the problems in his business. He's trying to rewrite the facts of the obvious and very real hardships and tragedies arising in his personal life. To help us understand this era for Hefner and Playboy, let's go into the story of a woman who, at just 20, had already made a name for herself in Playboy magazine and was on her way to a major career on the big screen. As with many other women we've heard about in this series, Hefner hoped Dorothy Stratton would help him find his footing and a new foothold in the movie industry, which he hadn't otherwise found a way to crack. After the break, we'll hear what happened as she was caught in a power struggle between three men, just as her star was rising. And I went to Hef and I said, you can't do this, this guy's wacko. Welcome to True Spies. 
the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Dorothy Stratton's journey into Playboy began with a chance meeting at a Dairy Queen. Back in 1978, she was Dorothy Hoog Stratton, and she's at work serving ice cream in Vancouver when a guy walks in the door. With this gorgeous blonde, this long fur coat, and what? I had him sitting at, um, waiting on him at the Dairy Queen, two little pigtails and a little red smock on, and I said, can I help you? And he says, what's your name? And... <laughs> His name is Paul Snyder. He has dark hair and a mustache. And he's impressed by her looks, too. They start dating. He showers her with compliments, buys her expensive presents, and accompanies her to senior prom. Dorothy is dazzled. And even more so when he asks her to run away with him to make it big. It's just like something you would uh, hear in a movie, right? Yeah. And they said, come to Hollywood. And- uh-huh. What she doesn't know is Paul Snyder is always looking for ways to elevate his own power and status, but hasn't had any luck. This is actually his second attempt at making it in Los Angeles, after a failed career as a pimp. This time, he hopes beautiful, unassuming Dorothy is his golden ticket. When Snyder hears about the 1978 Great Playmate Hunt, Playboy's search for their 25th anniversary centerfold, he's sure that his stunning young girlfriend could be a real contender. He convinces Dorothy to pose for a set of nude pictures. And when I was asked if I would pose for the magazine, um, I couldn't talk to my mother about it because she was in Europe, so I had to make the decision on my own. And uh, my boyfriend, who is my husband now, um, just uh, said that it was the best thing for me to do, and. So after about three weeks, I finally decided I would. Dorothy's photos are sent in to Playboy magazine, and the team is impressed. Marilyn Grabowski, the photo editor, brings Dorothy to the mansion in 1978. I brought her down from Canada. I introduced her to half. He was having his usual Sunday gathering, And I said, just keep an eye on her, because I didn't want any guys hitting on her or anything. Marilyn feels somewhat protective over Dorothy, who she thinks has the perfect Playboy look, in part because she's so naive. So she came in the next morning to my studio and went from this little shy girl that I brought down, first plane ride, first everything, 
the next day she came into my office and was, hi, you know. Dorothy makes the top 16 contenders for the 25th anniversary Playmate. And though she doesn't take top honors, she becomes one of Hefner's favorite models. Playboy can see her star potential. And so can Snyder. He's right along for the ride, just as he hoped. But some people at Playboy are put off by his insistence that Dorothy needs him in order to succeed. I told her not to marry this guy, you know, and she said to me, I owe him. Dorothy feels indebted to Snyder. After all, as he reminds her, he had hired the photographer to take the pictures that won Playboy over. So they get married in June of 1979. Dorothy changes her last name, but not to her new husband's. Playboy advises that Hoogstraten should become just Stratton. In August 1979, she's chosen as Playmate of the Month. She's taken into the wider Playboy fold, working a job as a bunny at the clubs. And she's introduced to a Hollywood agent. Dorothy plays small roles in several films that year. And introducing Dorothy R. Stratton as your favorite gal, Galaxina. And she's attracting more and more interest in the public eye. Snyder and Hefner reportedly both talk about Dorothy becoming the next Marilyn Monroe. In the meantime, she spends a lot of time hanging out at the mansion, especially enjoying the roller disco parties. There's one person I do want you to meet. The girl right here. Her name's Dorothy. She's very special to me. We're sort of close. I'll introduce you to her. Dorothy! Dorothy, I'd like to introduce you to some people who... As the year ends, Hefner decides that Dorothy will be Playmate of the Year in 1980. This is huge, both for her and for him. And now, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to... He's hoping that she'll be his way into legitimacy in Hollywood, which has always somewhat eluded him. And uh, she is something rather special. Canadian-born Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy, you want to come up here? At one mansion party, Dorothy is introduced to Peter Bogdanovich. He's a movie director known as part of the new Hollywood scene. I thought I'd be a failure if I didn't make a movie at least by the time or- I was 25, which is when Orson made Citizen Kane, and I was a disaster because I didn't make one until I was 27. They hit it off, and he offers her a role in one of his movies. Though it might seem like things are going great for Dorothy, there's a major and increasingly troubling aspect to her incipient fame. Although her husband, Paul Snyder, has capitalized on Dorothy's success, he's now suspicious that she's outgrowing him. Threatened by the prospect of being left behind, he tries to tighten his grip on her. He demands more influence over the jobs she takes. He tries to control her finances. Marilyn, the photo editor who brought her over, is disturbed by Snyder and tries to sound the alarm to Hefner. I knew he was a problem, and Hef would allow him at the mansion when Dorothy was making a movie in New York because he was Dorothy's husband. And I went to Hef and I said, you can't do this. He's, this guy's wacko. 
Hefner is concerned about Snyder to the point of looking into whether Canadian police records turn up anything alarming about him. But although Hefner calls himself a father figure to Dorothy, his focus is ultimately on her career. The shoot for Peter Bogdanovich's film begins in March in New York. He's taken with her, giving her more scenes in the movie as the shoot progresses. And off-screen, Dorothy and Bogdanovich begin a romantic relationship. After a little while of this, Dorothy tells her husband that she's in love with the director. She's clear about what she wants, a divorce. Snyder is furious. The power he hoped to wield over Dorothy is dissolving before his eyes. And, yet again, he's failed to become the big shot that he sees himself as. The last thing I said to her is do not see your husband alone. On August 14th, 1980, Dorothy Stratton went to see her husband Paul Snyder to negotiate a divorce settlement. They spoke at a house she used to share with him. While she was there, Paul Snyder shot her, and then himself. Journalist Teresa Carpenter wrote a long story about Dorothy for The Village Voice. It's called Death of a Playmate, and I've learned so much from it as I've researched this awful era of Playboy. Carpenter was awarded a Pulitzer for her reporting. Hefner is quoted in her story. He says of Snyder, A very sick guy saw his meal ticket and his connection to power, uh, whatever, slipping away. And it was that that made him kill her. But Peter Bogdanovich didn't think it was that simple. He went on to write a book about Dorothy called The Killing of the Unicorn. And in it, he places the blame for her death on two men, Snyder and Hefner. I don't know that I would say that Hefner is the real villain. but certainly his, he's culpable for many of the things that happened um, to Dorothy. Even without all the theorizing about who the real culprit behind Dorothy's death is, what feels totally clear is that Dorothy's well-being was perpetually overlooked by people hoping to capitalize on her, and that this was an extreme, ill-fated instance of what can happen when you're unlucky in a social, political, and professional system that doesn't prioritize your life as an actual life, but rather as a body up for use. Dorothy's ashes were buried at Westwood Memorial Park, the same place that Marilyn Monroe and Hefner would eventually be laid to rest. By the middle of the decade, Hefner and Playboy were at rock bottom and Playboy magazine was in trouble. The stock price plummeted. Morale was really low. And Hefner had begun to step back from his previous responsibilities at Playboy Enterprises. He didn't want to go to board meetings, investor meetings. He really wanted to focus on the creative things alone. And I stepped forward and suggested that I become president. This is Christy Hefner. The symbols of her job are not ears and a tail, but a briefcase, a tennis racket, and a clutch of photographers recording her every executive move. After the break, how the Playboy empire was rescued from financial ruin. She was a very, very smart young woman and effectively rescued the organization from the 
arms of its disastrous founder, who had virtually screwed up and thrown the whole thing away. And why, in the 1980s, a powerful new political system launches another attack on pornography. So that probably tells you about everything you need to know about how screwed up the attitude of the people who were involved in that process were. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Christy Hefner is 29 when she becomes president of Playboy Enterprises. Its stocks are falling, losses are mounting, and many analysts are predicting the end is nigh. Now, it's all on her to save the day. What, what was I thinking? I was 29 years old. I hadn't even gone to business school. I'd never worked at another company. That's true. But in other ways, her life had prepared her pretty well for this tough job. She was born in 1952, one year before Playboy magazine was founded. I had grown up reading the magazine. My mother had the magazine in our home, along with The New Yorker and The Atlantic and Time. Her mother was Hefner's first wife, Millie. After the couple separated, she lived with Millie and would go and visit Hefner just a few times a year. They weren't close. But while she was studying at Brandeis University, they started to talk more. And Christy began to come to terms with the parts of her father's life that had felt strange to her. That idea of who he was in his personal life was something that I came to grips with when I was a teenager and in high school and college. You know, that he was, you know, dating women my age, not women his age. As their relationship deepened, Christy even changed her last name back to Hefner to feel closer to him. She had previously used her stepfather's surname. Christy was a star student, graduating with high honors in 1974. I was drawn to journalism and law and politics. And I think that what drew me to those as possible careers was the fact that I saw in each of them a chance to have an impact and make a difference to make things better. After graduating, Christy is working as a journalist and planning to apply to Yale for grad school. I hoped one day I might wind up either in the U.S. Senate or on the Supreme Court. So quite different than how my life turned out. So while she decides exactly which ambitious career path to go down, 
My father suggested the idea that I move from Boston back to Chicago to learn a little bit about the company before I went to graduate school. Playboy is not the Supreme Court. I really saw it as a short-term kind of junior year abroad, interesting experience, but not the beginning of a different career path. I'd never thought about working in business. But Christy finds herself working her way up the ranks, taking on more responsibility. She's trusted to assess the viability of different parts of the business. If my dad or some people in management thought that being in the movie theater business, which the company was in at the time, was maybe not a great idea, they would ask me to go do an analysis of Playboy's movie theaters, the industry generally, that where it was going, could Playboy be successful? She's earning a strong reputation for her unflinching cost-cutting and business acumen. So when the crisis shakes up Playboy in the early 80s, and her father just won't deal with any part of life outside of his mansion fantasy, she decides she's ready to step up in an even more central role. Whereas for most of us, if you go to work in a company, you have a job and you get to do and have to do what your job is. And if you do it well, you might get promoted to another job and then you get to do that job. But you don't have that wider aperture of being able to experience other things in the company. And that's different in a company where there's family control. And that was a huge advantage and opportunity for me and became really critical when the company got in trouble in 1982. It makes sense. She knows the business inside out by now and has all the financial and managerial skills the older Hefner lacks. I really enjoyed the strategy and management side. I enjoyed the investor relations side and he really enjoyed the creative side. And I stepped forward about becoming president because I had the perspective over seven years of seeing a lot of different parts of the company. With her father's blessing, Christy immediately gets to work saving the business. It's a painful process. We really had to pare down. Christy ruthlessly streamlines. Staff are let go and whole departments are closed. Within months, She's reduced corporate costs by $8 million per year. Hefner Sr. trusts his daughter's judgment. She even manages to convince him to close many of his failing nightclubs. The heyday for nightclubs was past by then. If anything, people were more likely to meet up at their health club than at a, at a nightclub. Christy is turning the ship around. And she herself is becoming symbolic of a new era at Playboy. When Hugh Hefner began Playboy in the 1950s, it was unquestionably a man's world. But all that's changing. And if Playboy wants to adapt to those changes, who better to put in charge than someone who looks and sounds like one of those young thinking women of the 1980s? Christie's mere presence is doing wonders for Playboy's image. She's pushing Playboy as a major progressive force. 
The Playboy Foundation has given a lot of money to feminist causes, like the National Organization for Women, abortion law repeal, and the ERA campaign. And her promotion attracts major media attention. The press is predicated on the fact that a woman is now running Playboy. Christy says that she doesn't quite agree with the narrative that her position was sensational. And she said at the time that it wasn't out of character for Playboy to install a woman in a leadership role. I am one of five women vice presidents at Playboy, and there are a lot of other women in, in very high positions, both with the magazine and the company. Christy insists she was made the boss for business reasons and not PR hype or progressive clout. I don't remember feeling any particular pressure. And I wasn't a spokesperson for the company or the magazine, really. Meanwhile, she's working with her father to help revamp the magazine, focusing more on culture and lifestyle articles, and changing its look to fit in with glossy coffee table magazines. Then, she does something that transforms the whole business model of Playboy's role in the media. We had already started to move into television, and that became really valuable for us in the 80s as cable really gained traction. That was the period in which Playboy Channel launched. Playboy has been dipping its toe into cable for a few years, but under Christie's Playboy Channel, viewers can now enjoy shows such as The Great American Strip-Off and Sexetera's News According to Playboy. Hi, everybody. I'm Crystal Smith. And I'm Dan Kane, and it's time to get out of our clothes and into the pink on Nude News, a Sexetera special report truly dedicated to telling the naked truth. Because she is a serious businesswoman, Christy knows what makes money for Playboy, and subscriptions are soaring, if not for the magazine, then for the paid access channel. The Playboy channel gains 500,000 subscribers in the first six months and marks Playboy's place in the booming cable TV market. Christy has saved Playboy from collapse. But she can't solve all her father's problems. In 1985, Hefner suffers a stroke. Well, I think the stroke caused him, and he talked pretty openly about this, to really take a step back from his life and say, I always knew I wasn't going to live forever, but there's nothing like, you know, brushing up against your own mortality to remind you of that. Hefner decides he doesn't want to be CEO anymore. It's just too much pressure. And he's reevaluating his priorities. But the perfect candidate is waiting in the wings. Christy takes on this role too. Suddenly, she's responsible for every part of Playboy. When I became CEO, I was, wanted to create a culture where people had good experiences and felt valued, felt respected. Christie's duties as the head of the company include dealing with an increasingly aggressive and moralistic political climate. There's a great spiritual awakening in America. Uh, a renewal of the traditional values that have been the bedrock of America's goodness and greatness. President Reagan had swept into power in 1981, bringing with him a new brand of Christian conservatism. America is in the midst of a spiritual awakening and a moral renewal. And with your biblical keynote, I say today, yes, let justice roll on like a river 
righteousness like a never-failing stream. He attacked porn as a form of pollution and vowed to clean up the country. The federal government is on the offensive against pornography. Attorney General Edwin Meese announced today that he's setting up an obscenity task force. In 1985, the Meese Commission begins investigating the entire porn industry with the vague, broad intention of judging the effects that it has on society. Christie remembers Edwin Meese's first press conference well. He actually had the Statue of Justice, the female statue who holds the scales in her hand and is blindfolded, draped so that her nude bosoms would not be behind him in the press conference. So that probably tells you about everything you need to know about how screwed up the attitude of the people who were involved in that process were. The experts on the commission include a priest, anti-adult content lobbyists, and active churchgoers. Their serious research includes watching hours of pornographic videos, going on field trips to sex shops, reading a variety of porn magazines, and listening to pre-recorded dial-a-porn conversations. In 1986, the commission's report is published. Running more than 2,000 pages, it includes a listing of all known porn movies, some with capsule plot summaries, and has 92 recommendations on how to combat porn on the street, on the air, and on the news rack. The report concludes that pornography is indeed harmful and recommends legal action from the U.S. against the industry. The chairman of the commission, Alan Sears, has already sent threatening letters to the heads of convenience store chains across America. With erotica under siege, magazines as well have suffered. The circulations of Playboy, Penthouse, Gallery, and We have plummeted. Under pressure, 17,000 stores nationally, including the 7-Eleven chain, have stopped carrying sex magazines. This is a devastating blow to the business. Playboy, along with Penthouse and book industry groups, files a lawsuit. We wound up in front of the Supreme Court to challenge the Mies Commission's bullying of retailers and advertisers to stop selling or buying ads in Playboy. They win the case, and the Mies Commission is ordered to withdraw its letter. But Christie believes the actions of the Mies Commission were irreversible and that they damaged sales permanently. Arguably, the magazine and therefore the company never recovered fully in terms of getting to play on a level playing field of distribution for the magazine or advertising. If you looked at the advertisers that were in the editions of the magazine in Germany or Brazil or other countries around the world, you would see all of these advertisers that we couldn't get in the U.S. because the companies were too fearful that some of the conservative groups would go after them in their newsletters. As the 80s draw to a close, the company is caught between the outrage of the conservative right and the reality that they are not outrageous enough to compete in the new media environment, which is becoming ever more X-rated. Christie will continue to fight for Playboy's identity in a mercurial and punishing porn media landscape. But as she does, her father remains absently cloistered away in the mansion. In 1989, he steps even further back from the day-to-day concerns of his business when he marries the new love of his life, Kimberly Conrad. She was the one girl in the, the last couple of years 
that it really struck me and, and impressed me. And within about three months, I knew the unthinkable, that I wanted to marry her. Very soon, the couple are expecting children. The Playboy Mansion has become a home, not for a Playboy and his playmates, but for a husband and his family. But what most people don't know is that a young child is already living in the mansion. And though she's not Hefner's actual daughter, she too sees him as a father figure. She'll stay with him until she moves away to college, closely observing and being a part of every aspect of mansion life, with few rules and very little supervision. It's just taken me so many decades to clear my mind and understand the gravity of how possibly inappropriate that environment was for a kid. Jennifer Saginor is the daughter of Hefner's personal doctor, to whom he was very close. She spent a lot of time at the mansion throughout her early childhood, moving in full-time when she was 11 years old. In the next episode, we'll hear about growing up among the sex, drugs, parties, and politics that define that era of Playboy, and how she's still affected by all of that now. I definitely think I was raised as a misogynist, and I think for many decades, (laughs) I did see the world and women through their lens. And now I'm trying to have more compassion. That's next time on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the rise and fall of Playboy. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with Marilyn Cole, the British model you heard from in episode three. You'll also find extended cuts of other conversations with women you've heard from in the series and a brand new conversation that you won't find anywhere else. A talk with Suze Randall, the model, photographer, and pornographer who worked at Playboy and Penthouse before developing her own pioneering brand of online erotica. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. And here are the people who made our show. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. Hi, everyone. One last thing. Thank you to all of you for listening to Power Hugh Hefner. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to powerpod.fans to answer a few questions. Thank you so much.